Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, July 1st, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Longtime listeners of Inquiring Minds will know Neil Stevenson's book, Seven Eves, has influenced me in many, many ways. I've referred to it multiple times on this show. So you can imagine how thrilled I was when he agreed to come onto the podcast. He's just written a new book, and this time it's even on a topic that is very close to my heart, digital consciousness. It's called Fall or Dodge in Hell, and to some extent, it picks up on some of the characters of Reemdi, uh, one of his previous novels, but in many other ways, it is extremely different. For those of you who don't know him, he is a prolific author of epic science fiction books. And as Time Magazine's Lev Grossman says, sometimes when you're reading Neil Stevenson, he doesn't just seem like one of the best novelists writing in English right now. He seems like the only one. Neil Stevenson, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me on your program. So I have to say that Reem D and Seven Eves are two of my favorite books of all time, but for very different reasons, uh, which I'll get into a little bit later. Uh, and so when Fall or Dodge uh, in Hell came across my desk, it was like a Christmas present. I was so excited to get this book and I had no idea it was coming. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. I'm glad you enjoyed the other books as well. They are very different. Yeah. So you know, Reem D for me was like this fast paced thriller that was really exciting, uh, that, you know, had so much kind of content in it, but it wasn't nearly as technical as the first part of Seven Eves. And so, sure, you know, when I got to Seven Eves, it was really surprising. And I found it difficult, you know, to sort of get into it for a while. And then when you get to the whole sort of premise behind the, even the title Seven Eves, it completely blew my mind and and totally amazing. Yeah, it's, it's much more of a, Seven Eves is much more of a hard science fiction book, that's for sure. Yeah. And then, so then when I got, when, when I started reading Fall, right from the outset, it's, there's a, there's a vagueness to it. Uh, like uh, for our listeners who haven't uh, started reading it yet, which I'm sure many of them will read it as soon as they can get their hands on it. It is this, it starts out with the story of a billionaire uh, who has a, a sort of routine medical procedure that goes awry and all of a sudden he's in a vegetative state. And we never find out what the procedure was. 
um, which was surprising to me that that already from the outset there is this this kind of vagueness to it. So wh- why did you choose to go in this direction in comparison with Seven Eves? You know, um, it's always a little bit of a balancing act for each book to decide how deep into the weeds you want to get with technical details and specifics. And um, so it's just a book-by-book decision. And Seven Eves was straight-up hard science fiction and the the technical details of how rockets work and planets and orbits and trajectories were all very much of the essence in that book. And in the case of Fall or Dodge in Hell, uh, it was kind of uh, at the other end of that spectrum. Um, I wanted to get into the the meat of the story um, as directly as possible and not devote a lot of time to setting up a bunch of uh, kind of hard scientific detail that wasn't really going to be directly relevant to the main story. So, um, so I think that's part of what you're seeing there. And also, you know, of course, the topics are very different in the sense that in, in Fall, you're, you're really talking about consciousness and the brain. And I wondered whether the choice was in part, you know, because in some ways, I mean, I don't know if we know less about the brain. I mean, I, I think we do, given that I'm a neuroscientist and I feel like we oh. already know very little um, yeah. compared with, you know, the physics of orbits and, and that kind of right. thing. Um, was that part of it that you kind of wanted to maintain the reality of the situation without kind of providing details for which we don't have yet? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Fall is more of a, a fable. It's more of a, a myth kind of book. And um, there, as you say, there's so much uh, that remains to be discovered about the brain and how it works. And all I wanted to do here was to kind of riff on a particular idea that some people have of, of the, uh, the brain and consciousness and what those things are, namely that it's all down to the kind of wiring diagram of how the, uh, the different neurons are connected to each other. And that if you had that information and you could boot that up as a digital simulation, you would have essentially recreated what goes on in the brain. So I don't even necessarily believe that, but that's the premise of the book. Just like in Seven Eves, the premise of the book was that the moon blows up. So we, you know, we don't spend a lot of time in Seven Eves talking about how or why the moon blew up. And likewise, we don't spend a lot of time in fall uh, worrying about um, the, you know, the, the the brain and consciousness and all of that. Yeah, and 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 yet there's something super fascinating to me about this idea that um, you know we can digitize the brain um, and and that you know as as you mentioned that of course we think about the the wiring as being incredibly important, but it's also the thing that changes with experience. Um, you know, so, so I want to kind of get your thoughts on this, this idea of, you know, like, let's say we were able to upload our brains. Um, and, and let's say that, that, you know, that, that last sort of snapshot of, of the connectome was a key feature of that. Um, what do you think that the change in terms of digitization would mean, uh, given that our brains really are about, plasticity and, and sort of the biological changes that happen in a day-to-day basis? Well, those topics are actually explicitly brought up during the course of the book. So at the very beginning, the first thing they do is bring up a simulation in a static form that doesn't change over time, which, of course, as you point out, is 
is absolutely not how brains work. Um, and then after a while, uh, they're not seeing very interesting results from that. And so they kind of turn on a feature that enables this uh, simulated brain to self-modify in sort of in the way that their real brains do all the time. And with additional, as additional advances become available, they begin to simulate the remainder of the body. So it's not just a head in a jar, but they're simulating the gut and other uh, other parts of the, the human body that, um, that appear to have more of a role in, um, in, in how the brain works than we might have believed, you know, a, a couple of generations ago. Yeah, and I think that was a, a really key important insight. And, you know, people sometimes say, ask me, you know, not that I know anything about the topic, but, you know, how, how would, will, will artificial intelligence ever be conscious? And my answer is only if you can train it to have experience and to have some kind of physical substance. Because after all, even the simplest nervous system is about turning some kind of sensation into action, uh, right? So interacting mm -hmm. with the yeah. environment. And so that's a key feature. So it was really interesting to me, to read about your ideas of how that might work in a digital world, because I think for a lot of people, this idea of there being a kind of digital mind uh, that's separate from the sort of real physics of, of the rest of the world is hard to fathom. And yet there are also lots of people who believe that consciousness exists or the self exists or some aspect of our minds exist outside of our body. So, you know, that it doesn't end with our biological death. Right. Yeah. So, uh, and what happens um, very early in the uh, in the book is that when when uh, uh, Dodge does get sort of uh, rebooted in digital form, uh, he finds himself in a situation where there's no nothing for his sensorium to latch onto. There's no world around him. He's just kind of paralyzed in a, a vacant. Uh, Kind of space, and so uh, he has a kind of desperate need to have something recognizable that he can latch on to. So um, he begins to uh, to to create uh, around him an environment that gives him what he wants, uh, and and that environment is sort of a pastiche of uh, sort of jumbled memories uh, that he he has brought with him from his his former life. Um, it's just whatever kind of feels and seems right to him uh, and whatever kind of satisfies his need to be embodied in a physical context. Yeah. And then we, we get to, you know, the the second half of the book, the kind of book within a book, um, where here now, you know, you become, again, my like, you know, totally favorite author when you, you turn this into this fantasy world that, you know, rivals any of the great worlds of Tolkien or, or George R. R. Martin and, and, um, and you touch on all these sort of mythical ideas. And so tell me a little bit about sort of what, what was your thinking in terms of dividing this book into these two major sections? And why did you think it was important to include the sort of fantasy virtual reality world? I don't know if virtual reality is even the right term for it, um, that gets created as a part of this kind of, uh, I guess, um, well, in another interview, you've called it a thought experiment on digital consciousness. Well, I always knew that the overall architecture of the book was that it was going to taper. It was going to start out as straight up techno thriller uh, happening in our world. Uh, and, and then that was going to taper down and be 
uh, and then sort of gradually supplanted by um, by what's going on in the uh, in bit world, uh, the simulated world where these uh, reincarnated souls live. So the question then was, okay, what's bit world going to be like? You know, uh, and my thought was that we've got kind of in our collective unconscious um, certain patterns, you know, myths, legends, stories. Um, uh, religious beliefs, uh, pop culture, that is sort of how we make sense of the world. And, um, and that this is what um, people would, um, would sort of want to create around themselves. It's what would feel right to them once, the, uh, once they were um, in a position to, uh, to, to create, uh, create their own space. And so a lot of that world, uh, a lot of what we see in the Bible, a lot of what we see in myths and legends and in pop culture universes like Lord of the Rings is um, sort of a, a magical fantasy type universe with gods and titans and, and, and magic and that sort of thing. And so uh, it seemed to make sense to me that that's the kind of world that people would want to create around themselves. That's kind of the topic that people are thinking about now, which is kind of the difference between augmented reality, adding digital objects to, you know, the world as we experience it now versus a completely fantastical virtual reality. Uh, and and sort of where we would, you know, it's it, where our imagination can just run wild. Um, and, you know, so I, I kind of one of the interesting things to me about these two uh, potentials is that, you know, in, in virtual reality, you can get rid of all kinds of strife. Um, you could get rid of prejudice, you could get rid of, you know, bias. Um, but you could also make it worse, right? You could have a person who chooses to only see people who look like them or think like them. Um, whereas in, in, in the real world, you have to deal with that kind of messy diversity. Um, what what do you think about kind of where we're heading and, and which which technology do you think will dominate and, and sort of what the consequences might be? When you say which technology, you mean sort of AR versus VR, that kind yeah. of thing? Mm -hmm. Well, you're right that, uh, you know, they're very uh, more different than some people appreciate. And that with VR, as you say, you're completely replacing your, uh, your real surroundings with imaginary content, whereas in AR, uh, uh, the, your surroundings are still there. And so you've got to add stuff to it. So um, the um, um, my my assumption is that is that AR is going to end up being more useful for most people because uh, you need to be able to um, to see your surroundings. You know, you don't want to step on your cat or trip over the rug or um, uh, walk into a door when you're uh, when you're using this uh, this technology. Um, so I guess I'm more uh, focused right now on, on how to do augmented reality. Uh, and yet in this kind of digital bit world, uh, it's essentially the epitome of a virtual reality. And so, That's true. yeah. So do you, do you see that as the only, I mean, these are, these are different, these are different things, right? Yeah. We're, we're talking about, yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> well, in, but in, in, in this world, I think AR is, is going to be a more practical, useful uh, technology to develop, but that that doesn't have any application to uh, the bit world that's described in the book. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think that that we are heading towards a kind of digital uploading of our brains, or do you or or do you think that that was just never going to happen? 
Uh, I am very skeptical about it myself. Uh, this is more me taking um, a, a particular set of uh, beliefs uh, about that topic that um, that some people have put forth and and saying, okay, fine, let's let's say you're right, then let's spin out a uh, a story based on that and imagine, you know, what could go wrong, what could go right. Mm-hmm. So I take it in your will, you don't have a clause uh, that you, your brain is to be ion scanned and <laughs> uploaded. I, I do not. I do not. <laughs> if there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment and get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is confidential and it's so convenient you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you're not happy with your counselor though, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Inquiring Minds listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash minds. Then simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash minds. So one of the other choices that you make in your novels is that some characters return uh, in, from one novel to another, uh, but you don't like to call them sequels. And I was surprised in, in the marketing materials for Fall, like it never, ever mentions that some of these characters, you know, are from Reem D um, and, and, you know, other novels too. What, why is that? Uh, I don't want to um, create uh, misleading expectations. Uh, <clears throat> you know, people who uh, who've read Reem D um, are um, have are, are going to be expecting a uh, a, a Reem D like book if I describe Fall as a sequel to that, um, and it's not. As you point out, it's an extremely different kind of book from from Reem D and. And moreover, um, there's no reason why you would need to have read Reemd in order to uh, be able to pick up Fall and just start reading it and, and enjoying it. So uh, I, I think to, to call it a sequel in this case um, would just be kind of misleading terminology. And yet, I think a lot of your listeners, like one of the things that is super fun for people is to find threads and, and to, you know, this is this is sort of geekdom or nerddom gone wild. This is what we do in everything, <laughs> whether it's, you know, Star Wars mm-hmm. or, you know, novels or, or what have you. Um, we love to find these Easter eggs and uh, you do drop a number of them. Is that intentional for your fans? Is that something that, you know, is part of your, in your, in your kind of, mind where you have these worlds is that just just exists as it as it is or 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 you know why make those choices i guess a little little bit is is easter eggs uh for for people who uh for people who like that i mean um there are these connections between these books and um um it's a common thing in uh, in science fiction and fantasy to kind of tie books together kind of loosely in that way. So um, I don't know. It's not a thing I put a whole lot of forethought or planning into. It's just a thing that sort of seems to make sense at the time. And so 
uh, I, I put it in there. You know, it's, it's, it says something about us as humans where we, we really love to find patterns. It's something that is incredibly yeah. pleasurable for us. Um, that's right. You know, so I think that that's, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, your books kind of hook us in. Um, but of course, there's all these other kind of fantastical ideas that it, they force us to consider, um, which is one of the reasons I love them. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the pattern recognition, you know, aspect of of your writing and sort of just the 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 way in which the stories unfold um, that you know helps us? I mean, it's so satisfying to, when these things, when these threads get tied up again at the end after you've kind of you know set them loose. Um, tell us a bit. Like, do you storyboard out things far in it, you know, so that it all works out that way, or, or you know, are you able to keep all of these threads going as you're writing? I tend to keep as much as possible in my head. Um, the amount of information that you need to keep in your head in order to track the story of a book um, is simply not that large. You know, so anyone who works for a living who's got any kind of job um, has to keep at least that much information in their head all the time just to do their job. And so I think it's much better to just keep all of that in memory while the project is moving forward um, because it's it's much more accessible. Uh, you're not rooting around trying to find your notes or your outline, and it's much more plastic in the sense that once you've kind of storyboarded something out or written a fixed outline, it takes on a kind of permanence uh, that it doesn't necessarily deserve. And I think it's better to um, to just keep it loose, keep it uh, flexible in, in the mind um, so that uh, you can uh, access it on the fly and you can change it on the fly if you get better ideas. One of the other things that you often do is you tell the story from multiple perspectives um, so that, you know, people get uh, instead of not not using necessarily a first person narrator, but rather that, you know, you're, you're the, the, the narrator is being somewhat um, influenced, let's say, by the character whose actions they're following. Uh, tell me a little bit about that choice. Uh, well, I don't think it's a super unusual thing to do. Um, the use of multiple point of view characters is a pretty common uh, literary device. And, um, you know, it uh, gives you the ability to kind of cut back and forth to different camera angles, as it were, um, which sometimes um, is a, a technique that can be used to speed the narrative along. Um, uh, you can kind of uh, sort of jump ahead um, or kind of streamline the storytelling a little bit uh, by by doing that. Um, and uh, um, you know, it's just a it's just a pretty common, uh, unexceptional uh, way of telling stories. I want to just talk a little bit more about your conception of um, consciousness. And I know we don't need to get bogged down into the academics of, you know, what it is and how it works, but rather just sort of have some of these kind of big picture uh, thoughts about, you know, what do you think are some of the most important things, uh, you know, that uh, of the brain that, that you know, we, we might want to preserve or, or there's this drive to preserve. Um, you know, in, in writing the story, you, you explore a lot of different avenues. Um, but one thing that struck me is that, it, you know, it dodges in hell. It's it's not all pleasurable. 
Yeah, at first it's uh, it's a pretty grim situation, and he has to kind of dig himself out of it a couple of times. Um, the um, I don't know. A couple of topics are that um, we perceive the world around us at a very high degree of resolution and and clarity, and the world behaves in a consistent, internally consistent manner. It follows certain rules, and um, so in order to make a satisfying virtual world. It's necessary to to do all that. It's necessary to simulate a realistic universe at full quality, full resolution, and that is a very expensive proposition uh, computationally. Um, so it's not enough just to simulate the uh, the brain itself, but uh, it's also necessary to um, create the world that that brain is going to exist in. Uh, so um, and it's necessary to to simulate the the, the body that uh, has such an influence on our, uh, our feelings. Um, so you know, computationally, it's just a super demanding, uh, thing to do. And, um, that's why I spend some time in the book sort of trying to lay out a justification for where they're getting all of this computing power. Yeah, I think that's a really underappreciated uh, aspect of virtual reality um, and even to a certain extent augmented reality that, you know, people keep saying, like, why isn't it here already? Why don't we have the technology? And, and you know, the answer, I, th I think, is in part, I mean, you can tell me more as, as a, you know, a part of the Magic Leap uh, company, uh, that there's just so much coding that has to be done <laughs> that, you know, it's like you can have the goggles and you can have the, but, but we, somebody still has to create all of these digital objects. And, you know, in some ways, digital artists just aren't as, uh, appreciated as artists that work with real substance. Um, can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, this is the challenge that, uh, game developers work with all the time. The uh, you're developing a game. You're trying to plunge your your players into a world that will sort of enable them to suspend their disbelief. You're trying to make it look cool and uh, behave in a consistent way um, to follow rules of physics and so on that that are like what we have in our universe. And um, there are you know various game engines and add-on packages and so on that can be used to to help make that process a little easier, but it's still a big, uh, a big project. And that's why big AAA games have got enormous budgets and enormous payrolls because it just takes a lot of artists, a lot of programmers, a lot of, uh, of engineering and creative brain power working for a long period of time to make even a, a small slice of an imaginary world. So then that, Brings me to sort of this this um, kind of question, you know, there there does seem to be a a, a, um, a big income divide, right? That you know, creating these games, creating these virtual spaces is very expensive. Eventually, the technology is going to be pretty cheap, like the goggles. I mean, to wear or or sort of you know, um, it's just going to get cheaper and cheaper. And and you know, these these companies are not going to rec recoup their investments unless a lot of people start, you know, buying and, 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 you know, playing and, and spending time in these, these other environments. Um, so what do you see as the kind of, you know, the, the economic f landscape of virtual reality in the future? Is, is it something that, you know, you think will continue to, um, 
just separate the haves from the have nots or or do you do you see it as as something that might really become much more available well it has to become available enough that um that it becomes a a widely adopted technology the way the way phones are now even in um less developed countries um you know cell phones have become pretty ubiquitous they might not all be top of the line iPhones but they're there and they they work people use them and if you can't um break that barrier and reach uh, a lot of people then you don't get the big audience and you don't get the economies of scale um that you would like to have so um the kind of uh class divide if you want to call it that when it comes to the content that appears on these devices basically boils down to is it free or are you paying for it so in the case of say a triple a video game that runs on a game console uh, or a pc it's running on big hardware it's expensive to make um and you uh you have to buy it you know you, you might spend 60 bucks or something like that uh buying one of those games and then you might spend more buying things as you play it um whereas um with uh with casual and mobile games there's a different model, kind of the free to play model, um, where you can download the thing, you can play it without spending any money, but the developers still have to make money somehow. And so they do that by selling you additional goodies through the game. Um, so in both cases, you, the player, have to pay for something uh, because if you don't, there's no way that content would ever get made. It's just a question of what the, what the revenue model is. And do you see one or the other being more nefarious or having consequences that are sort of, um, I don't know, more uh, sort of, I, I don't even know what's, what the word to say, but maybe different or, or cha- world changing? I, I, like my, my, my preference is um, paying for things up front because basically because I'm a writer, I guess. And so my revenue model as a writer is to write things, get paid for them. People buy the book. It's a straight up transaction. And so uh, the artist gets paid and the purchaser knows what they're buying. The other model, I think the sort of free to play model ends up incentivizing aspects of the game business that um, that I'm not as fond of. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, the same thing is happening in music, uh, which is, you know, my uh, one of one of my passions. I want to talk about um, one one last question, which is a, a character that that comes in and out of your novels who's pretty enigmatic. I'm sure you get this question all the time, but um, I really want to know more about Enoch Root. <laughs> um, is he immortal? It, you know, it, what's what's his story? Well, uh, I think part of the fun of Enoch is his enigmatic nature and sort of wondering who the hell is this guy? So <laughs> I think it would kind of spoil that for me to just come out and, uh, and, and answer direct questions. Um, you know, if you do a little uh, searching into the biblical Enoch, there's some, some clues that, uh, that emerge from that. Um, he's a kind of unusual character in the Bible. And if you, um, you know, if you read fall, there's some more clues that suggest get, you know, sort of provide a, uh, a possible explanation of where this guy came from and what he is. 
Yes. And, uh, and I'll take that opportunity to highly recommend Fall or Dodge in Hell to all of our listeners. Um, they've had to listen to me talk about Seven Eves on multiple episodes. <laughs> um, so I'm sure Fall will have the same legacy in Inquiring Minds. Uh, but I am so thrilled to have had the opportunity to speak to you. Neil Stevenson, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on your program. So that's it for another episode. I hope you add fall or dodge and hell to your summer reading list. It is absolutely perfect for taking to the beach, uh, although it is heavy. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Miller, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds and get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your own summer reading advice and anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan and I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. See you next week. Whatever struggles you're facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Inquiring Minds listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com minds and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.